0: This presentation has been brought to you by a burning cornfield in conjunction with the concept of internal bleeding. It has also been brought to you by a planet-sized eyeball floating alone in the darkness, watching all. The host clothes have been provided by the shame of a generation. Special thanks to the dead flesh of a fallen god and the nameless sense of the noose being placed around our necks as we go about our daily inconsequentialities. Hair by a child-eating demon. Makeup by the inescapable shackles of a diseased culture. Microphones by the half-remembered screams of our nightmares. Set design by a broken and irretrievable sense of place in this world. All rights reserved for those who can grasp them with their weak and trembling hands as if this will forestall death. And now, we bring you to a very special episode of... The Post Culture Podcast. The premise was solid, familiar, the way an old pop standard is familiar. A family sitcom with a working-class schlub in the center role, surrounded by three precocious children and a beautiful, sassy homemaker for a wife. There was a quirky neighbor and a co-worker with some wacky, get-rich-quick schemes. There have been a hundred sitcoms like it, but in the way a trained vocalist can take a familiar melody and make it something unique to their voice we would take this sturdy old setup and give it our own flavor. We have three kids, so two of them can engage in conflict, and the youngest can say adorable things until the actor is too old for it. You have the quirky neighbor to make humor from contrast, and you only have one because more than one will cause confusion among infrequent viewers. The husband is the schlub because no one would accept the reverse. Making them both attractive makes them unrelatable, and making them both unattractive is a statement. We are not here to make a statement. We are here to bring laughter to hard-working Americans. You don't mess with the fundamentals, so your personality comes out in the details. Our show has a relatable Midwestern setting, and we made our protagonist a postal worker a profession that has not been explored recently in this format. His wife is going to be a former model with a sharp tongue and a down-to-earth attitude. The neighbor's quirk is that his family belongs to a strange religious order we haven't quite defined yet. We think the co-workers' get-rich-quick schemes will astound in their creative wackiness. The cast is mostly solid. We're thinking of adding a grandfather. We have a lot of good material about the way things used to be. We are not fond of the choice of actor to play the protagonist. The network has fostered a C-list stand-up comic into the position, but he is not right at all. He is not a working-class schlub, or even ruggedly handsome. He is a chinlish nebbish, and we have been asked by his agent to incorporate bits from his act into the show. If we were less confident in our premise, we would smell disaster. But the premise is solid. This is why you need a solid premise, first and foremost. A solid premise can absorb any blow.
1: And now a brief word from our sponsors. Come on down to Crazy Lester's Used Cars where we have gone mad with power. We can charge literally anything we want for these cars. A dollar, a chicken, three droplets of Yeti blood, anything. Here at Crazy Lester's we're slashing prices. We're slashing lots of things. We hold the knife and we are drunk with the possibilities of what we can rend asunder with its blade. God help us, we could slash so many things. Need a new car? Used car? Something to fill the emptiness? Will a Nissan Sentra fill the emptiness? Will the speed and passion of a finely tuned machine make you feel whole and pure? Isn't it strange that the word whole, as in complete, sounds like whole, as in meaning absence? What a new Kia Rio end the suffering for you! Come on down to Crazy Lester's, each new car comes with a complimentary knife. You are doing God's work now!
0: And now, back to our story. The first few episodes have gone well. The audience has found our variation on these common themes to be pleasant, light viewing. The purpose of such a show is to find longevity. The key to which is inoffensive laughter the first time around, comfortable familiarity in repeats. It requires a delicate mixture of mild surprise and time-worn craft. So far, the machine is working. However, we are running into difficulties with the human element. Our protagonist feels we are mocking his character, which of course we are, as is fitting to the premise. The actress playing his wife has ideas about her character, as well as political views she wishes to express. Our grandfather... A sitcom veteran looking for a comfortable paycheck in his elder years is showing some idiosyncratic behavior around the set. We suspect the eldest of our precocious children has a drug dependency issue. We must hold firm. Our dislike of our protagonist is starting to show in the witty barbs we craft for his wife to fling at him. There has been some discussion to the effect that these barbs may be too sharp, but the majority opinion is currently that they add some zing to the program. Just recently, the wife referred to the protagonist as an impotent husk of wasted inconsequence and that every word out of your mouth is like a cat puking into the soup of polite conversation. It has come to our attention that our grandfather never changes out of wardrobe and seems to be living on the set. We based his character so much on the actor's own mannerisms, it's actually difficult to tell if he's ever-breaking character. At first, we thought this might be some kind of over-enthusiastic method acting exercise, but further research reveals he's just a homeless person. As he never flubs his lines and always hits its marks... We have little cause to complain. However, there have been reports that he's been showing the craft service folks the teeth he's lost since the previous day's shoot. This is particularly odd since he has dentures. We are still processing this information. There are concerns that we are already repeating ourselves with our quirky neighbor's bizarre religious preferences. His religion, which we have farcically named Zoodiexterism, is a mishmash of occult and paranormal beliefs presented with a wholesome straight face. It has been the source of many excellent gags. However, the secret of such a source of humor is to never repeat yourself, to keep adding endless streams of new additions. In order to avoid repetition and to keep the jokes fresh, but also from contradicting each other, we assigned a staff writer to document everything that had already been said about Zoodiexterism in the show. The writer we chose was remarkably thorough in this matter, creating a detailed record of this comical religion. The document's resemblance to a religious text was noted by the other writers, and the one who put it together began to jokingly refer to himself as the prophet. At least we think he was joking. The joke has worn thinner as the weeks have worn on, and his insistence on the title has grown more adamant. There is strangeness leaking into the show. We're losing a modicum of confidence in our abilities to hold it all together. The human element is fraying around the edges and beginning to crack in the center. One of our precocious children has turned out to be a glutton for horrible drugs, which she consumes in ungodly quantities. This has remained out of the press for the most part, but we have found that we have had to employ a generous five hours of makeup work just to keep her from looking like a haunted, soulless wraith on camera. We managed to write her uncontrollable drooling into one episode with some success, but the three-episode arc where her hair fell out in clumps stretched credulity. Our stress has found release in ever more bitter quips from wife aimed at protagonist. Unfortunately, this has led to a series of witless invectives that culminated in an episode where every line of dialogue spoken by wife to protagonist was just her repeating the word filth to him, regardless of what he did or said. Fortunately, a number of critics thought this was a bold choice. This artistic reappraisal was short-lived, though, as in the next episode she would just spit on and slap him in every scene they shared. And now, a word from our sponsors.
1: Have you been injured, hurt on the job, betrayed by an uncaring God? Call me, Mike, the Hacksaw Legowski for all your legal needs. I will make your insurance companies suffer. I will make your enemies beg, and they will write your checks in their own goddamned blood. Don't delay one more second. Call the Hacksaw now. Hey, did you kill a guy? I don't give a shit. I don't even want to know. We will make them all pay shove a fucking knife right into the sick society and make it bleed like a wedding day pig. Call now! Get what you can, because the devil ain't waiting anymore!
0: And now, back to our story. We are concerned with the growing Zoodiexterism element among the writing staff. We received a script that was nothing but a representation of the complex Zoodiexteran catechism ceremony, ending with the sacrifice of a live kitten. When we decided to do an episode where our protagonist has to help his kids prepare for a bake sale when wife gets the flu, most of the writing room went on strike, demanding we show more respect for their religious convictions. Promising to include a scene of the Zudictrian marriage rites has pacified them for now, our resulting frustration led to an additional scene where the wife beats the protagonist with a tire iron for a solid minute and a half of screen time. It was not our best episode. A streak of ad-libs from our actors has further skewered the already shoddy, disorganized plots coming out of the writer's room. Protagonist is insisting more of his comedic material be used, but as he has not had time to perform stand-up regularly due to his commitment to the show, he is recycling bits from old notebooks that never worked out on stage. We recently had to excise a three-minute speech about how Toast is weird. Wife has been disappointed that we did not allow her to express her deeply held political beliefs as part of her character, so she has begun to include them herself. After we removed an extended anti-vaccination screed from one episode, she began to insert her views into more difficult-to-edit places. Along with our uncontrollable urge to vent our frustration towards protagonists through her, this has led to some odd moments, such as one sequence where she spent a full minute of airtime whipping protagonist with a belt while delivering a heartfelt invective against fluoridated water. Even our dependable, if odd, grandfather is drifting from script. He has not left the set or broken character in at least three months, and while he delivers his scripted lines, he often includes odd tangents and digressions. If we're lucky, they involve nothing more than his talking about the dark, ghostly figures he sees wandering the set at night. If we're unlucky, we end up having to stop production while he pulls out a bag containing at least a dozen human mouthfuls worth of teeth, meticulously describing each one. We pray to God the Father, we are never asked to provide a blooper reel. Something has happened that has impregnated our minds with a morbid obsession. Something dark and sinister finding portal to us through our show. It began with a late night editing session. We were looking over the most recent episode, working to repair the cracks and return it to some semblance of normalcy. Lost in thought, brooding over our growing difficulties, we let the episode run on. The closing credits rolled over a static shot of the living room set, the center of much of the show's action. So wrapped up were we that we hardly noticed when the credits ended. But the silence that followed was not the right kind of silence. Instead of cutting to the production company logo, the shot remained silently on the empty living room. We watched, confused by this odd occurrence. On the back wall of the set were the stairs that led to the second floor of the family home actually a set going nowhere. They ran from the bottom left of the screen to the top right, nondescript wallpaper and family photos covering the wall behind them, the couch just off-center. As we watched, hypnotized by this unexpected silent moment, a leg clad in black slacks, black leather shoes, took a single step down the stairs. The image cut immediately to the production company logo as it should have been in the first place. We sat, stunned, unwilling to believe what we had seen, but unable to deny it. This was not part of the premise. We have been neglecting our duties to the show. We know this, yet we cannot pull ourselves away. We still watch the show, watch it with an obsessive attention to detail, poring over it frame by frame, yet the plot, the dialogue, even what the actors are doing hardly concerns us. We're looking for cracks in the reality of the program. Those ghostly images that seem to infect the show like a spreading virus, only to disappear from sight without warning. The eyeless faces that briefly flash on reflective surfaces. The way a face in one of the family photos on the set nearly blurred away from the low picture quality will, for a moment, seem to be screaming. Scenes that should cut to go to a commercial break, but keep on a beat or two longer than they should, the stillness of the set in a static shot becoming haunting in its inactivity. We once nearly fainted when one of these silences was broken by the sudden tortured female scream, punctuated by a mirror in the shot suddenly cracking as if struck by some invisible force. The scene cut right away and never reappeared. Compared to such insidious horrors, what hope do the comedic foibles of a middle class family have in holding our interests? We catalog these occurrences diligently, hoping desperately to quantify and understand what we are seeing, to bring some order to it. As the images are fleeting, our catalog is the only record of what is happening, To protect it, we have developed a code based on Nordic Ruins that we have encrypted all of our writing into. We are so tired. The network has come down on us hard. Our inattention to the day-to-day production of the show has been noted with no small level of displeasure our obsession with the darker forces finding portal into our world has left a lack of a controlling hand to keep the human element in check. Something that this most recent reprimand delivered with a harsh note of finality has corrected. The show is falling apart. We see this now, viewing it with clear eyes. Pushing the screaming evil at the program's peripheries as far from our minds as we are capable, we recognize a crisis we may not be able to contain. The drug problem of our eldest, precocious child has reached a level where she is now catatonic for nearly every episode. She is wheeled on and off set like a potted plant and with about as much to contribute. Protagonist, his stand-up career totally stalled, delivers a desperate three-minute monologue each episode with no relation to the action occurring around him. He bribes the editors into adding canned laughter to what are essentially joyless screeds on such overcooked topics as airline travel and fast food. In turn, Wife has inserted a short endorsement for the power of crystal healing into the last three episodes grandfather is wearing an unexplained necklace made of teeth. Every third episode is an in-depth examination of the rites of Zudiksterism. Our quirky neighbor, long forced into being a conduit for the increasingly convoluted and oddly bloodthirsty Zudikian writer's cult, has become an emotional wreck, who sobs violently when off set and self-medicates with increasingly potent tranquilizers just to make it through his symbolic rituals. We're fairly certain the youngest of the precocious children has not appeared in five episodes and is entirely unaccounted for. The season finale is filming this week. If we cannot bring the show in line, then it and the careers of all involved, including ourselves, will come to a decided end. We are not optimistic. And now, a word from our sponsors. Bad credit, no credit, no shame, no remorse, bad stains on your soul? Call us, we can help. Consolidate all your possessions into a single box and then set it on fire. Find the security you need to at last reach beyond yourself and kill your neighbor. We take organ meat as collateral. Anything is okay when God's not looking. Tired of worry, despair, moral
1: exhaustion? We don't care. We'll kill your pets if you cross us. So call now. Why wait when we're right behind you? And
0: now, back to our story. We are done. There is nothing to salvage from our final days of shooting. And in the end, the whole thing came as close as a major network sitcom can to having a total psychotic breakdown. Ultimately, we blame ourselves. It began with the story, or rather the lack of one. The writer's obsession with Zudikian rituals was too far gone, and we were forced to cobble story elements together at random just to have something to work with. We think it in the end it had something to do with a comically misguided dinner party. We've lacked a studio audience for months due to the number of children that have disappeared from the set, so the episode was filmed in silence that we would cover with canned laughter later in post. Though we endeavored to convince Grandfather to wear something other than the loincloth he had made himself from leather, the source of which is dangerously unknown, we failed to make our point in a way that he could understand. He hid his marks, though, The only other cast member we can say that about is our eldest precocious child, who, as a comatose skeleton, has only given one mark to hit and no lines. Both our other children have vanished, and Child Protective Services and the Screen Actors Guild have refused to allow us to replace them. The ad-libbing began almost immediately. Our protagonist ignored his script and instead began to monologue, on how white people and black people are different. Rather than channel our frustration through wife, we channeled it more directly through a prop toaster from the kitchen set we used to beat him senseless with. As for wife, she also ignored her lines and proceeded to kick protagonist in the groin as he lay unconscious on the floor, more out of habit than direction, and gave an extended commentary on the power of positive thinking quirky neighbor just sat on the couch and wept. Worst of all, the ghostly visions which we had been repressing began to return. Only now, rather than seeing them through the screen during editing, we were seeing them right before our eyes as we watched filming. Shining eyes glaring at us from the rafters, shadows of dark figures moving over the set with no body to cast them, the sound of a child giggling faintly, as if from the bottom of a deep well. We tried to hold them back, but all we could do to control them was to shut our eyes and scream silently until shooting stopped, at which point we would scream openly. Without our control, the production fell into further disarray, The crew was in open revolt, the actors ad-libbed freely, or vomited uncontrollably depending on their level of inebriation, and the whole thing ended up with us being shut down rather dramatically by a SWAT team. The police had been tipped that a religious cult had been murdering children in the studio, which is not exactly true, but would not have been surprising. In any case, the writer's room was tear-gassed. In fact, most of us were tear-gassed. Uh, with one errant grenade shattering an overhead light, sending a shower of sparks over the surprisingly flammable set decorations. Our last memory of that day before blacking out from the concussion caused by being struck in the back of the head with the butt of an AR-15 was of the living room set bursting into a fiery death's head. We were all arrested, some on more substantial charges than others, The set burning down revealed what can only be called an excessive number of children's skeletons hidden in the walls. The ensuing investigation left no clear suspects. It turned out more than one member of the cast, crew, and production team were basically living on set. Grandfather, of course, had been there for months, but it turned out the entire writing staff had taken up communal living in the writer's room. Our doped-up, eldest, precocious child was essentially in a makeup chair to cover her endless bodily desecration from 2 a.m. until the day's shooting, after which she would lay prone in her dressing room. And, of course, we were often in the editing room, looking for ghosts on the television screen all night and into the early morning. Hardly a compelling argument for our innocence, admittedly, though we don't remember doing as much extended blood-coughing screaming as we apparently did. Taken together, the security camera footage from around the set makes a fascinating document showing a vast tableau of human mental illness. We were released, eventually. The writing staff, though cleared of child murder, were found guilty of animal cruelty and sexual deviancy. Grandfather, though a prime suspect, was also found innocent and wandered off into the woods right after his release. The investigation has sunk into a legal and mental quagmire, we're fairly certain that's where it will remain. The network will never recover, and we're certain we will never work again in this industry or within the borders of any functioning Western democracy. In a way, we're glad. The program attracted a dark presence. The finale was never aired, and will never be in any state to be aired, though... Certain psychiatric societies have expressed interest in the raw footage. We fear we, had we finished the series, it would have opened something into the world. A vile strain of sickening cosmic madness that would have pulled our world into the brink of a global psychosis. We pray to whatever passes for a god in this universe that it never finds a foothold somewhere else. Still, the premise was solid. Thank you for listening to Episode 5 of the Post Culture Podcast, a sitcom. Our opening theme was provided, as usual, by Fourth Shift, you can follow them at soundcloud.com slash fourthshift and at twitter.com at fourth underscore shift. The music used in the car dealership ad was provided by Buell Kazi. It is a track called Butcher's Boy. All other music in this episode was provided by Psychic Mold. Follow them at psychicmold.bandcamp.com. Please provide your support. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. Just a reminder, keep watching the skies. They might be watching you.